Thank you, Christina, for that uh, lovely welcome. It's very nice to be in this sacred land, this beautiful hall, with this gathering of uh, beings intent upon aligning with the way things are, with waking up to the true nature of this experience, this mysterious experience of life. So let's, um, let's begin our time together this evening with a meditation, an offering, making an offering to ourselves, clearing a space and welcoming our experience to be acknowledged, touched, recognized in this space. As we're sitting here, can we sense the firm, deep support of ground, this Mother Earth? It's supporting this building, this community, center this wonderful hall, and we feel our body pulled by this deep power of Mother Earth pulling us through gravity uh, so that we sense this chair or this cushion that's holding us up. Just acknowledge that we're not on the freeway driving, that we're not having to be on such high alert to avoid any oncoming traffic, that we're in a meditation hall, a sacred place dedicated uh, for those to to enter who are interested in deepening, illuminating, blessing our lives. So just recognizing that we might not know anyone else here, but can we sense that we're with kindred spirits, people who appreciate the power, transformative power, of pausing, listening, receiving, the sensations of sitting. We feel our body, the pressure of our body touching the chair, the cushion, feet on the ground or on the mat.
allowing those sensations to be touched by awareness, by inner listening. And as we receive this moment, noticing that this body breathes reflecting that especially out here in this countryside that we were surrounded by an ocean of pure air that we're allowed to breathe in any time we want and as we breathe in we receive that vitalizing principle We can breathe out whenever it feels right. That what we breathe out, the trees breathe in. And what the trees breathe out, we breathe in. Even if we stop breathing for only a a minute or so, just noticing the uncomfortable feeling that starts to permeate the body-mind. Then taking a full in-breath and a slow, calm out-breath sensing that flush of subtle nourishment as the life force carried in the the air, the oxygen, the prana blesses every cell in the body. with a relaxed awareness, not stressing, staying with the sense of the body sitting and breathing. This is what the Buddha called bhavana, a training of the heart. A training of this heart-mind to steady itself and be with the actuality of sitting and breathing. Each out-breath is a natural opportunity to soften the forehead, the jaw, subtly release the shoulders and belly. With each out-breath we relinquish trying to get somewhere else. In this practicing we're learning to honor being here now. Learning to enjoy the simplicity. 
of letting go of trying to get somewhere else and of resting aligning with the suchness with the actuality of sitting breathing relaxing steadying ourselves as we stay connected to this moment. we align with the present moment we notice the in-breath swelling the sensations of receiving turning into the out-breath we can use that quiet thought of let go with each out-breath as we just remind ourselves not to push anything away but to allow things to come and go. Just allowing the sensations to arise and shift within this honoring awareness. The sounds touching the heart, shifting and dissolving. Like flashes of lightning in an immense night sky appear and dissolve. The sounds, the sensations manifest and dissolve. Each out-breath, just to remind ourselves, let be, let go.
rather than trying to make things a certain way. Exploring an attitude of honoring how it is. Encouraging the heart to relax with the way things are. The sounds are like this. As we allow our awareness to receive the texture of the sounds as they vibrate, flicker, shift, dissolve. Honoring the sensations in this body. As we sit here breathing, and mixing, blending, allowing the vitalizing principle of breathing to infuse, to bless this body as we breathe in, to soften and let go of unnecessary stress and holding as we breathe out. Not as a willful act, but as a trusting, a deepening of trust that it's okay to be here, resting in wakefulness. Interested in the alchemy the mysterious transformation of awareness
Do you notice that you're struggling with something? Explore whether one is wrestling with a sensation or trying to get peaceful or get rid of some annoying feeling or thought processes. What happens if we are friendly and allow, welcome, whatever the sensation or sound or feeling tone, not pretending to like it, but to at least not add aversion, contending. Just honoring, this is how it is. Sometimes the very aversion to a feeling, a sensation, a mood, is more painful than the actual condition itself. having a kindly, friendly, this awareness, its nature is to bless. So what we notice, what we receive with a kindly attitude, kindly awareness, touches, and mysteriously transmutes, blesses whatever it's in contact with. As we honor this moment, we're metabolizing, digesting,
So we have 15 minutes to stretch, if that's helpful, uh, to take a break, to walk around, to appreciate this lovely, peaceful evening. 15 minutes and um, then we'll return for the dump for a Dharma talk.
again uh, welcoming everyone to this Monday evening gathering. Having the opportunity to congregate with kindred spirits. Offer a space to ourselves to reorient. to dharma, to actuality. To the suchness of things. We share, I suspect uh, we share something profound. Oh, there's a multitude of unique shapes and sizes and backgrounds and karmic configurations that we all are manifesting here now. I suspect that we all <clears throat> share a faith a faith in some sense that there is such a thing as awakening. That there is a possibility of growing beyond our prejudices. Seeing through and relinquishing our unskillful addictive tendencies, illuminating our confusion so that we're not so identified with and spun around by every mood, whatever one might call this. If we, if we didn't have some sort of trust or faith that, that there is a awakening process that's possible. A growing, a maturing in wisdom and compassion, then I doubt if we would be here. These days I'm remembering with a lot of gratitude the extraordinary good fortune I had uh, 42 years ago to hear about the Thai master in the forests of the northeast the Thai master named Ajahn Chah, 
This year marks his 100 years since he was born. And about a week from now is the full moon of May, which in the Buddhist countries is called Vesaka Puja. The month, this month of May is called Vesak. Puja means the honoring, the honoring of this uh, sacred day. Where we remember uh, the the birth, the awakening, and the passing away of the Buddha. Buddhists are very economical with their holidays. <laughs> Born on the full moon of May, awakened on the full moon of May, left this body, what's called the parinibbana, died on the full moon of May. But as we were encouraged in our monastic life, to ask that question, what can happen between birth and death? What have we done with our life? And as I reflect on this uh, occasion and this uh, remembrance of the hundred years of my meditation master's birth, I'm just filled with a lot of gratitude. Forty-two years ago, I certainly didn't have the sense that right here, Now, wherever we are, whatever posture we're in, whatever mood or circumstance is manifesting, whether it's praise or blame or things going well or things not going well, whether it's success or failure or a pleasing, happy or painful difficult or neutral that whatever is happening at the essence of that very circumstance at the essence of every moment is peace Forty-two years ago, I was 24 years old. In some sense, I was uh, celebrating the 24 years of exceptionally hard work. I was at Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship.
been a wrestling champion in my life from when I was just young training myself to to win to work hard to and and feel that sense of uh goodness about myself by doing well. It wasn't bad. I mean, that I worked so hard on academics or was doing 500 push-ups a day before tournaments or walking on my hands to build up my shoulders in strength. I could walk on my hands for 100 yards, climb ropes. We even had a wrestling mat at home and my brothers who were on the team wrestled with each other. But I definitely had this, this idea that true well-being was a function of success and that somehow I would get there and that then you've done it, you're successful and then you're happy. And I found myself at Oxford at 24 exhausted, weary. The stress of aiming, even though it wasn't bad, But I sensed I'd overlooked something. That there was so much importance in my life of of being acknowledged as doing well, being a winner. There were some clues. When I won the National Invitational Prep Tournament we flew up from Tennessee to Lehigh, Pennsylvania for the tournament. And when I won it at 17, which was wonderful, my heroes when I was growing up were national champions and I saw their pictures on the wall and thought, oh, could maybe, maybe one day I do something like that? When I won the tournament and had my hand raised up Our team was cheering. We didn't have a lot of fans in Lehigh, Pennsylvania, but my parents were there. They were everywhere encouraging us. But how long does your hand stay up in victory? Okay, mom took a picture, so, you know, it's in the scrapbooks, but... Scrapbooks open and close. And within minutes, after winning, I was noticing that I was already worried. Already. 
couldn't even really enjoy. I didn't know how to really enjoy accomplishing something. I was already worried who's returning next year that I might have to fight to retain my championship. But by the time I got to Oxford, I I just knew something was wrong. Even though I was on paper or in the scrapbooks, a measure, nothing great, but a measure of success, inside, anxious, not that patient, selfish, so competitive, And I knew that I had overlooked something inside. And I even heard the word enlightenment. I had no idea what it meant. But just that word touched something. I knew that that's an important word. That there's something that can change inside. Something to do with one's relationship with life. It can make all the difference between whether one's abiding in heaven or hell. So I was at Oxford. uh, I was supposed to be going to medical school back in uh, America, but I had unexpectedly won this scholarship, which was exciting for me and my family. And I wanted to do something just different. To I wanted to be a doctor. So I thought I at Oxford I'd study something to broaden my education to be a better doctor, I thought. So I was writing a... Even though I didn't have much experience in English literature, I was writing a thesis on Aldous Huxley called Art, Science, and Mysticism in the Works of Aldous Huxley, which is a big topic, Art, Science, and Mysticism. But I, I, I loved science. And I had a sense that there was an, an inner, I didn't know what mysticism was, but I had a sense there was, there was something that I was overlooking and being so focused on evaluation, comparing, winning, losing, getting, acquiring... But when I felt so exhausted, I just thought, I'm missing something. Then I heard about this master in Northeast Thailand that had a few Westerners with him, as well as lots of Thai monks and nuns.
And the person that lived in Thailand that I happened to meet that told me about this, this teacher, he was a strong American psychiatrist, scientist, explorer. He was passing through Oxford uh, wanting to discuss with Oxford professors a, a paper he had written on the origin of thought. His name was uh, Dr. Douglas Burns. And, and I, had, I was on this, my first meditation retreat that I'd ever done. And after that retreat, the managers just said, oh, there's someone here looking for a place to stay in Oxford. Do you think you know of anywhere? And I said, oh, he can stay with me. Dr. Burns was a very no-nonsense, strong, confident man of the world. He'd walked across the Arctic. He'd dined with the king and queen of Thailand. He'd academic, meditator. One of his hobbies, as he was telling me about his life, was uh, doing studying in the different monasteries of Thailand, studying the different monks, giving them personality tests so he could gauge what effects did meditation have on their personality, on their sense of being over the years. So he was talking like this about all the different monasteries in Thailand, was interested. But then he said, oh, there's one very special place. And there's uh, one very special monk. And his body posture got soft. His voice got softer. And as he spoke, said the name, Ajahn Chah. I had never heard that sound before, that resonance of reverence. It was so beautiful, so striking. He said, Ajahn Chah. And he's enlightened. I could tell he had such deep reverence and affection for this uh, being. And he said, and he has a few Westerners with him and the senior Western monk is an American named Ajahn Sumato and if he's not enlightened, he's close. (laughs) I found myself just uh, thinking, I gotta go. like those old movies that you ever see in an old movie some bare-chested man banging a gong <laughs> that reverberates through the realm uh, when I heard about just that name that reverence that there was a possibility of studying with him I just knew I had to go.
So within weeks I had gotten a leave of absence from the roads, people. I still thought, oh, I'll do this. After all, I'd done a whole meditation retreat and had... Okay, it was difficult and I didn't do so well the first few days. But I did have moments of peace. So I calculated, um, you know, in a 10-day retreat I had a moment of peace. Then, well, you know, three, 10 days in a month, 12 months in a year. Should do it in a year, but after all, I'm humble. Give myself two years. I thought I could just blow through. So I went into the roads, the warden of the roads trust, uh, saying, I, I'll come back. I, but, uh, and I could also justify it in terms of Aldous Huxley in his later life was interested in Buddhism and in mysticism. And the warden, who was a canny, clever, shrewd, being Sir Edgar Williams. He said, Randy, you're not coming back. I said, oh, yes, I am. I'm going to come back, finish my thesis, go to medical school. He said, look, you've had your degree from Princeton. We're interested in the person, not the process. I think you've got... I think you found your vocation. And I was shocked. My vocation? He saw that I was a monk, going to be a monk. I said, no, no, no. He said, look, we'll keep your scholarship for you for a few years, but uh, if you want to come back, but I don't think you'll come back. He said, don't look back. I think you found your vocation. So I'm also, you know, grateful for his blessing. But my parents were horrified. (laughs) Randy, what did we do wrong? If you look on the globe, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the northeast of Thailand are virtually as far away. They were very worried. But I went off to Thailand and uh, Dr. Burns met me and took me on an overnight train up to the northeast, a poor part of Thailand called the Isan. It's like the outback near the border of uh, Laos and Cambodia. It was famous uh, for its meditation monasteries. When we got to this town of Ubon, then we took a little pickup truck kind of taxi thing to the monastery. And as we approached the monastery, Dr. Burns, or he said, call me Doug, we got barefooted and were walking into the monastery. And it was, we had taken the overnight train, so the, uh, we were getting there in the early morning. Sun was rising. 
And out of the forest was a line of monks walking with their bowls quietly, single file, on arms round. But something about the shaved head. I was in my overalls and my beard and my long hair and something about the shaved head. There was a bit of a reaction. It was almost, for a moment, I thought I saw a line of skulls walking. But I thought, I quickly thought, never mind, Kitty, Randy, you'll get over it. And at some point, uh, Doug took me to then meet uh, Ajahn Chah, this master. And when we got to his hut, the huts were on stilts. He was sitting in his wicker chair underneath the hut with some receiving guests with some lay people, talking things over. And as we approached, we, I, I just followed uh, Doug, what he did, and he, he bowed, so I didn't know what a bow was, but I tried best I could. We just sat down on the floor as Ajahn Chah continued to talk. And at some point he looked at me and just said, uh, what'd you come for? Why are you here? And suddenly it's like having a spotlight on you and you think, oh. I just think out of... I didn't say, well, I'm really tired. But I mumbled something about enlightenment. But you know when you're talking sometimes and, and the words just seem really tinny and kind of peter out, that's how it felt. And he said, well, do you know how to meditate? I perked up because I'd done a 10-day retreat. So, and even though it was hell the first three days, on about day four or five, I had a moment, we were just being with the breathing, and my mind was crazy because I was always used to getting on to the next thing and winning and losing. There was not a lot of learning to just be with how it is. But the technique that I was taught was, was sweeping the attention through the body and... Uh, I felt like I was pretty good at it. Because they talked about sweeping down the body and I realized I could sweep down both sides of the body simultaneously and they didn't even talk about that. So when he asked about meditation, I said yes and I explained my meditation and I was, it would have been nice had he noticed, I was hoping he would notice that I was skilled. Because uh, I was... Uh, had read Ram Dass's, so inspired by Ram Dass's Be Here Now, when, when uh, Neem Kroli Baba 
basically tapped him and he had blinding experience and or you've arrived. So I'm proud of my meditation, telling my little story. And right while I was still in the middle of it, Ajahn Chah got off the, his wicker chair, got on the floor on all fours and started sniffing around like a dog and saying things. And so the other, other people were, were, were laughing. And I mean, it was funny to see the master down on the floor sniffing. And so I was laughing too. But I'm thinking, can we have a translation? Um, but even before the translation, I could intuit that he wasn't that impressed with my meditation. And finally, he got back in his chair and he's just smiling, kind smile. And Doug just said, uh, Ajahn Chah just says, you don't have to go around sniffing all over the place, looking at too many things. He said, be with your breathing. He pointed to his nose. If you understand one thing well, you will understand everything. If you try to understand too many things, you might, not, you might end up not understanding anything thoroughly. If you understand one thing well, you understand everything. He just smiled and said, Let Samedo teach you how to be a monk. Samedo was the Western monk who'd been there 10 years already, the senior monk of the Westerners. Let him teach you how to be a monk. So I did. I ended up staying 15 years. And I think back of the blessing, and even today, of that simplicity, that sometimes we are getting overwhelmed by trying to deal with too many things, and the grounding, aligning, stabilizing, healing, blessing of coming back to this moment, being with this rhythm of breathing in and breathing out. then there is the possibility of recognizing a essential characteristic of life. What the Buddha called anicca. Nicca means set, permanent, Stable. The prefix a means it's not that. It's changing. It's ephemeral. Though intellectually we all know, is it always daytime? No, nighttime comes. 
Is it always the full moon? No, the moon waxes and wanes. Intellectually we know this. That pleasure and pain, success and failure, are not permanent. But emotionally, feeling-wise, do we really understand that? having permission to, wasn't asked to believe in the Buddha. In fact, all those big statues, at first I thought, what are they? Some of them even had Christmas lights on them. But we didn't have to believe in the Buddha. We didn't have to like anything. If you were willing to live in this forest, not harming any creature, As a monk, we were easy to support. You had one meal a day that you got as you walked quietly through the villages and received the alms food. You could live peacefully with the creatures in the forest. We didn't have money. We weren't allowed to have money. One was giving up worldly activities and as a monk, practicing celibacy, You were encouraged to, to doubt, not to force oneself to believe anything, but encouraged to train this heart to be with this moment, to learn how to be with an in-breath and an out-breath, to learn how to be with our feet touching the ground as we're walking, learning how to be with the sensations of coming and going and rising and laying down. And that as this uh, mindfulness gathers power, this quality of presence, then when it looks at something, it notices, for example, that this breath, which is a noun, it sounds like a thing, appears and shifts and dissolves. And that that truth is true of everything. Every so-called thing is not really a thing like the sounds of this talk. A talk sounds like a thing. Is it a good talk? Is it an interesting talk? It is, I've heard that all before, talk. Or boring talk. the actuality of touching the suchness of a talk. The words manifest and dissolve. Manifest and dissolve. Appear and dissolve into this quality of listening. This quality of awareness. That what seems so solid as I started to practice and learn to be with simple things, 
as this power of mind became composed and then it notices that the in-breath and the out-breath and sounds and feelings and moods are actually anicca, they're changing. And anything that changes, then if you're expecting it to be a certain way, that's going to lead to frustration. That's why it's called dukkha. It's not able to satisfy us. So even a victory, though that sounds like a thing, I'm a winner, appears and dissolves. What is changing then is not able. It's not through any failing on its part. It's not a criticism of the manifested world, but something that's changing is dukkha. It's unreliable if we lean on it, expecting it to support us. It will let us down because the in-breath turns to the out-breath. Youth and strength turns to old age. I used to could do 500 push-ups a day. I... If I could do nine, I think that would be pretty impressive. Just this last uh, few weeks, I've even having trouble walking. I've never heard of a Mor- Morton's neuroma. Just innocently getting out of the car at the post office, I put my foot down in this incredible pain from the ball of my foot up through the whole body. Whoa. This body ages. That's what it does. It's something that changes and is Dukkha, Ajahn Chah, who was sharing teachings from the Buddha, said it is anatta, it is not, it doesn't belong to you. It's what's called not-self. It's, it is what it is. Strength, weakness, health, sickness, So I was so excited. Felt like a real, another kind of wrestler, a warrior, looking into the nature of things. Ajahn Chah said, if we look for certainty in that which is uncertain, we're bound to suffer. Looking for certainty in that which is uncertain. The actuality of this this moment, the light, the colors, as we notice, if we can see, being in this room, as our gaze shifts and changes, notice they become otherwise, the forms in every moment, intermixed with the sounds, they're seeing intermixed with the sounds of this talk, woven together with the sounds of the land. Woven together with the sensations of our body, and any thoughts we might be having, 
So the actuality of this moment is cascading flow of changing sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations and images, concepts. And if we're imagining that we're then going to get somewhere, this idea that I'll get to success, when one notices this flow, we can't grab it. It would be like going up to a waterfall and imagine we can grab it. We, we can try. Or the Buddha said it's like trying to grasp air. We will reap weariness, he said, and frustration. How, how does one can be in awe, honor? But when we try to hold on to success, stave off pain, hold on to praise, avoid criticism, only have things the way we want them, in some sense we're always looking for certainty where there isn't certainty. So even in those first years in Thailand, just this teaching of letting go, if one starts to let changes be what they are, we can start to notice that all this change is happening within something that does not change. The Buddha taught with Muttisarasa Bedama that there is a freedom right at the core of every moment. Every moment is shifting and changing, but there is something that is unbounded, unmoving, untroubled, right at the heart of the moment that we don't notice. When we're so busy imagining, we can grasp certainty. So I'm excited about this training and just starting to get a feeling for this Buddha's teaching of this possibility between birth and death, this possibility of waking up. Meanwhile, my parents are worried I've been abducted by a cult. This is the 70s, not that long after Jamestown and all those mass suicides. In the mid-70s, this is the, after the horrors of the Vietnam War. The bombings of Cambodia and Laos. Rumors already were coming back to the States about the killing fields of Cambodia. And our monastery, my parents could look on a map, our monastery was right near the Laotian and Cambodian border, near the Mekong River. Meanwhile, I'm riding home real born-again enthusiasm. But they were worried. As I like to say, Buddhist monks were thin on the ground and 
Chattanooga, Tennessee. So they flew out to Thailand. and met Ajahn Chah. And my mother was not at ease in the jungle in Northeast Thailand. (laughs) But being a loving mother, and mother and father, concerned for their child, they wanted to see what what had taken me halfway around the world. And I was so, to this day, touched by Ajahn Chah's making time for them. Making time to be with us as a family. I remember my father being very worried for our safety, even just, he says, but there were these communist guerrillas, insurgencies happening in, in Thailand, on the border. And um, my father, that was one of the questions he was asking Ajahn Chah. Are you safe? And Ajahn Chah nodded and said, Yes, you know, there there are these external dangers. But he said, the the guerrillas, the insurgents, the bandits of the heart, much more dangerous. You don't really understand those qualities of greed, having to have aversion, hatred, pushing things away, delusion, being confused about what is me, what is mine, who am I, what is real. That when we don't recognize these internal forces that they will rob us, terrorize us, destroy well-being. And he told my father, that's, that's what we're doing here. And to this day, this, this simple remembering, it's probably not etymologi- etymologically correct, but I like the word remember as opposed to dismember. Remember, realign with true principle, true suchness. To remember what we're doing in our meditation, we're illuminating that which can cause disharmony, distress in our own heart.
because I can get caught in worry right now. I'm worried. I'm worried for our country. I'm worried about, oh gosh, I can get caught in worry. What if, what if our democracy is, is gone? What if our capacity to really choose who we value as leaders because voting systems are being distorted and people are being purged from the roles and the interference with the machines and not even that. Well, what about the, the animals and what's happening to them and, and climate change, which is very... What are we doing if we can't have a government that cares and the in violence and the injustice and the threat to our minority groups, our brothers and sisters on this earth and all the different kingdoms of human life, plant life, animal life, unseen life. And these are true. And it's not that we shouldn't, with all our heart, respond. But I notice I can get so worried and carried away that I get dismembered, dislocated from my refuge. And I like to remember what, uh, you know, Ajahn Chah reminding us that we, to really make a difference outside, we need to take care of what's inside first. The Buddha said, enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, people aim at their own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and they experience mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both. And they experience no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana. Visible in this life. Immediate. Inviting attractive and comprehensible to the wise. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, we overlook the jewel, the precious, true nature. The Buddha taught that this heart of ours is luminous. There's nothing wrong with our heart. It's luminous. There's a quality of heart that is pure, unmoving, what the Buddha called deathless, undying. But the Buddha said we get disconnected 
we lose track of this original brightness, of this luminosity of heart, when we're confused by what's moving through the heart. The sights and sounds and smells and sensations and thoughts. In the meditative training, we start to apply this mindfulness to remember, to connect, consciously connect, with awareness. What Ajahn Shah called Puru in Thailand, Puru means the one that knows, the knowing. This refuge in Buddha, this Buddhic principle, this timeless, ever-present, always here and now, essential knowing is right here if we align with it, they can know the sounds in this moment coming and going. They can know that a breath is swelling and subsiding. Ajahn Chah describes this knowing like this. He said, it's like waves breaking on the shore. After a wave hits the shore, it breaks up and a new one appears in its place. Waves can reach no further than the shore. In the same way, since objects can go no further than our sense of knowing, Meeting the perception of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, they split apart and disappear. This knowing, timeless, unshakable, the sensations right now, the sounds, the thoughts vibrate and appear before the knowing and dissolve. The knowing is sometimes called something true, solid ground. Or sometimes it's uh, compared to space. That this awareness, this knowing, is like a night sky. Flashes of lightning are like our experience that appear and manifest and dissolve. But that the sky is untroubled. Forms manifest and dissolve. When we're so obsessed with forms, with pleasure, with getting our way, with acquisition, then we contract, get riveted on desire and aversion, shrink our true boundless nature to identify with strength or a possession or 
a group or an opinion. But if we start to remember the knowing, the buddhic refuge, returning to that which knows, we can see that whatever comes, goes. We can start to get the feeling of all the manifestation which appears and dissolves. And that that sky-like essence is unmoved. Whatever storm, whatever lightning and thunder flashes, the sky remains untroubled. The Buddha taught that peace is not far away. It's right here. At the core of every moment. So on this day, as I think back, on good fortune, I feel with gratitude and remember what the, the Buddha said in the Dhammapada. He said, it is hard to find a being of great wisdom. Rare are the places in which they are born. Those who accompany them when they appear, no good fortune indeed. If you find a good companion of integrity and wisdom, you will overcome all dangers in joyous and caring company. So may we embark on this journey. I had the good fortune to be with someone that bestowed courage, that said, you can do it. The Buddha wouldn't have taught this if it was impossible. This true nature was it, which is at the core of every moment. It's not that you attain it, when we let be and let go, allowing the sounds and sights and smells and thoughts to be what they are, then they are like those lightning flashes that are beautiful. But we can honor their ephemeral nature and appreciate that unmoving. Like right now, Things are moving, but what is it that never moves? The sounds move. The sensations of swelling and subsiding move, but the listening, the knowing, there's a dimension at the core of our being that is not coming and not going. And when we partake of the encouragement from meeting with good beings to remind each other of this path and not to get too overwhelmed by what's out there, to take care of also the internal alignment and purification so that we can encourage by each other then 
manifest lives of truth, of honesty, of compassion for our impact on each other, of wisdom, of not just being confused, then we can make a difference. Finishing with a a quote from Ajahn Chah, one of my favorites, that keeps it simple. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. We are deeply interwoven with each other, with this land, supported by Mother Earth, held within this boundless, mysterious awareness. May we finish this evening with a gift. Trying to grasp anything leads to distress because ultimately nothing's ours. It's all shared. So may we finish with the ease of each out-breath, relaxing and sharing the goodness of our lives, our blessings with one another, with Mother Earth, with our parents and ancestors without whom we wouldn't be here, with the peoples that used to inhabit these lands, all the creatures around us, seen and unseen, Mother Earth herself, 
the strong beings, the weak beings, those suffering, oppressed, in whatever state, just by relaxing and sharing. May the goodness of our lives bless all beings. As we relax, then this energy emanates naturally, like a pebble dropping into a pool, sends ripples in all directions. May this gift be carried on the ancient mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum. Om is a word that honors the totality. Mani means jewel, Padme means lotus this jewel of the radiant heart at the core of all manifestation. Hum means Amen. Om Mani Padme Hum. Thank you for joining me. May the blessings of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha ever flow into your life and shine for the welfare of everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate